because actually the big problem is actually the flow through the emergency pumps. People need to be realistic about this. We're in for a long haul here. You have more beds, you use those beds better, and you don't keep people in those beds when they don't need to be there. There are no quick fixes to this. This has been going wrong for quite a long time. Welcome back to the National Health Executive Podcast, giving you views, insight and conversation with leaders from across the health sector. I am your host, Louis Morris. Hello and welcome back to the National Health Executive Finger on the Pulse Podcast. I am your host, Louis, and today I'll be speaking with the Royal College of Emergency Medicine's President, Adrian Boyle. Hi, Adrian. Afternoon. Firstly, thank you for accepting this on such short notice. The only reason I wanted to get on this podcast is because I saw a brief clip of your speech um, to the Health and Social Care Committee, was it, in the Parliament? Was that right? Yes. Um, and you said the main part of the patient waiting time problem isn't demand. And it just got me thinking, what, from your perspective, is the main part of the problem? Okay, so that's a really good question, and it's something that we spend a lot of time trying to explain um, to people outside emergency departments. So the... The numbers, if you look at the numbers going to NHS England's former statistics, they'll always say the numbers going up to emergency departments and to A&E are going up. But when you break it down by different parts of the system, and when you take out the type one, the major A&E units, and you consider those, actually the numbers going to those places have not increased very much. And they've probably increased about the level of population growth. The majority of growth you're actually seeing is in minor injuries units, eye units, um, urgent treatment centres. Now, if you don't think about it properly and actually try and understand what the problem is, because the problem we've got is we're not able to look after people properly who come into the type one emergency departments, who get stuck on trolleys for long periods of time. The, the emergency department is full. This means that then the ambulance service aren't able to offload. And we see all those problems that we're seeing all over the press at the moment um, about ambulances being unable to offload. So when we say demand management is not the problem, that's true because actually the big problem is actually the flow through the emergency pump. And that's because we just don't have enough beds in our hospital and we don't use our beds as efficiently as we could. So it's the whole bed blocking issue, would you say, is the main part of the problem? So that that um, is, yes, I mean, yeah, that is the single biggest part of this problem. And if you want a data-driven answer to this, um, absolutely, the what we've seen that has led to all the problems we've got is the people who are staying more than seven days and the people who are staying more than 21 days, which is a sort of indicator of um, how the beds are being used within a hospital um, has gone up. And this is translating then into very high occupancy levels. So in December, we recorded the, the almost the very highest level of hospital bed occupancy that we've ever seen. So when people say, oh, we just need to encourage people to make better choices about what they do or try to avoid have a public health campaign to avoid people going to emergency departments, we don't think that's going to fix the problem. We need to try and introduce the concept of different queues, and it's think, worth talking about the admitted patient queue and the non-admitted patient queue. Even if we got everybody who didn't need to go to emergency departments not to go to emergency departments, and you know people quibble about the number, but it's actually probably quite a small number. 
they are not the people who sit on trolleys for hours and hours and contribute to that hand over delays. If you look, our problems are actually all around quite a small proportion of our patients, an important group, but a fairly small proportion of patients who are require a trolley, require in a cubicle and can't be in the waiting room. Now, most emergency department waiting rooms can get very busy and very full. It's not dignified, it's not great, but it doesn't have anything like the dangerous knock-on effects on the ambulance service and delays to treatment and people being looked after on trolleys in corridors. So I think it's important to have a bit of sort of bit of understanding from an export point of view where the problem is. And the problem is really about what we call exit block, and that is admitting patients to hospital. So you said that the entire concept of demand being the main part of the problem is a misconception. And therefore, if you do think that, what are some other common misconceptions that you see floating about in the health sector about the problems with backlog and patient flow and bed blocking, all that sort of thing? So I think one of the... It, it, one, it is a mis misconception and it, people think try to think it a little bit too simplistically, oh, it's supply and demand, but actually this is multiple different queues and we need to dissect that out. And that's quite quite important because you've got different queues and different people have different sets of problems. Um, now, there are caveats to that. There are bits where actually there are things people can do around demand management that would help. And one of the things that would really help is improving the clinical offer within NHS 111. So NHS 111, um, only about 50% of contacts actually have a, clinic, a clinician involvement. And the problem with that is it's necessarily very risk averse. So it sends far too many people on to seek another level of care. If you have a clinician involved with triage, which is a difficult, skilled clinical activity, you can reduce that. And there's good published evidence that having a clinician involved with NHS 111 safely reduces the demand for other services. And I see loads of patients who come to me and said, I didn't think I needed to be seen, but I phoned NHS 111 and they said I needed to come to the emergency department. And I'm sure it is exactly the same, both for the ambulance service and for our colleagues in primary care. So in terms of demand management, improving NHS 111 would be a good step. There are lots of other misconceptions. So there is a misconception around bed blocking that it's all about people um, who need uh, to go to some form of um, residential care or nursing home. Actually, the people who are stuck in hospital waiting for discharge, it's normally actually they need to go home with some extra support at home. And we think it's right and you know better for patients if they can go back to their own home with a, a bit more support. There's also a myth and misconception that it is all about social care. You know, it's very tempting for um, people in the NHS to go, oh, the problems are all about social care, nothing with us. And social care will say, well, you always say that, it's just you're blaming us for your own inefficiencies. And in truth, the answer is actually somewhere between the two. Um, the NHS undoubtedly could be more efficient. And when we get really busy and really crowded, we become less efficient. And also social care, um, if it was funded properly and invested in properly, it would be able to do the job that we all needed to do better. Yeah. So um, if there's one thing that you and the Royal College of Emergency Medicine could say is the biggest thing we need to tackle or to cut patient waiting times, of all the things you've mentioned, I know you've mentioned a lot, what would you say it was? So I think focusing entirely on reducing whole hospital occupancy um, would be the single biggest thing. Everything else 
is actually a sort of surrogate process outcome. But reducing capacity and making sure that we have enough beds within our hospitals to function um, safely, that patients get looked after on the right wards, patients can be admitted promptly, would be absolutely the single biggest thing to aim for. So reducing whole hospital occupancy would absolutely be the right thing to do. It. Now, there are a number of ways how you get to that outcome. You know, you have more beds. Yeah. You use those beds better. And you don't keep people in those beds when they don't need to be there. Yeah. So it's expanding capacity and social care problem. I, I saw there was there was thousands and thousands of patients every day in September 2022 who were medically fit to leave hospital but weren't able to because there was nowhere for them to go. Yes. And, you know, it's actually really bad for those patients as well. Um, yeah. So an elderly person who's in uh, in hospital they are at risk of all sorts of things. They may pick up an infection. They may have a fall. They will become institutionalized. They may become weaker. They decondition. They're at risk of getting delirium. Wherever possible, we should be trying to make sure that people can safely and comfortably thrive in their own homes. Now, sometimes that's not possible, but that must be the way that we actually try to look after people better. Yeah. You said it's um, a capacity issue and therefore a funding issue in, in a way, I suppose. But the whole spate of workforce issues that are going on at the moment, there's, lo there's loads of industrial action going on. There's record vacancies, I still think. I saw in September it was 132,000 in the NHS. And there's all sorts of things going on like that. Do, do you think that's affecting the state of the NHS at the moment as well? Oh, undoubtedly. So um, days of industrial action have knock-on effects. And usually what we see is that uh, a day of industrial action, people cope really well during the industrial action. What is difficult is what happens over the next, uh, the next, the, the subsequent days. Um, and you hear difficult statistics about how many operations are being cancelled um, and the knock-on effects from it. But, you know, at the same time, staff need to feel valued. You know, healthcare staff are providing a important public service they need to feel valued yeah so in terms of i don't know what the, the state is at the moment if they're going to agree on these different unions and, and sort of negotiating but what would you say to sort of the health leaders that they need to do to sort of arrest the situation so as a royal college we can't comment around okay. whether we support um, industrial action what we can say is that we recognize um to look after patients properly, you need a adequate workforce and you actually need a workforce who feel valued. Yeah. So what would you say is the best way to make a workforce feel valued? So there's lots and lots of things about it. I think our biggest problem with workforce at the moment is the conditions we're expecting people to work under. Um, and people find it very frustrating when they train to do a job and then because of conditions, are just not able to do it. So give you an example of a paramedic who does a three-year degree course, learning how to do lots and lots of useful things. And then he finds that he spends his entire shift just sitting in an ambulance waiting outside a hospital. You know, that's got morale Im impacts, but also it's actually got training and development impacts. If you're getting less exposure because you're, the whole system has come to gridlock, it's really bad for that for that staff member. And we see similar examples all the way through the patient pathway. People need to be able to given, be given the space to demonstrate their skills and their value. Now, there are also all sorts of other things that we can do to look after staff to help them retain. 
you know, we need to make sure that people feel they're invested and they're being developed. As Royal College, we're always keen to make sure that people are getting their educational opportunities and their professional development. That's really important. It shouldn't cost. And certainly in my own experiences that when teaching and training gets cancelled, that has an incredibly corrosive effect on morale. We need to have spaces where people can feel where they they actually have a chance just to decompress and have a break. If you go around most hospitals and look in the break rooms, you'd be pretty appalled. A lot of places have lost break rooms because we've expanded clinical areas into our break areas and into our staff areas just to find an extra cupboard to try and put put a patient in. So making sure people can actually feel that they can go to a place which isn't unpleasant, that they can get hot food and drink and park, you know, make sure that when they turn up, they feel valued. Um, You know, when you go to a hotel, the check-in process is really slick. When you start work in many NHS hospitals, it is not slick. You know, I regularly hear people say, on my first day at work, I managed to pick up a parking fine that was about the equivalent of half a day's salary. No one could give me the passwords. No, pretty much people behaving like they didn't even know I was coming. I wasn't told my rotor. I have no autonomy over myself. You know, so there are actually simple things. And that doesn't need government to sort out. Actually, that, that's about good management. I suppose it's the whole thing that healthcare is a people-oriented business, but it's, it's reminding people that the actual workers are people as well. Uh, absolutely. I think that's a good way of phrasing it. Um, and, you know, staff will all use the NHS in some point. You know, um, we're all part of this together. But, uh, you know, if you look after the staff a little bit better, and actually that doesn't necessarily need masses of investment. It actually just needs good management sometimes. There are things that we can do that really help people stay. We're becoming increasingly worried around retention. And there's lots of things which are making it very difficult for people wanting to stay. For senior doctors, there is the all the problems around pensions and the pensions trap. Um, There are also a whole bunch of people looking at senior doctors going, I'm not sure I want to do a job like that. And I would I'm worried that we are going to see a lot of people leaving the workforce either to go abroad um, or to to just leave medicine uh, entirely. Yeah. In terms of the doctors going abroad thing, I saw there was it was I think it was a a midwives thing. There was a lot of people. Basically, the UK is recruiting a lot of midwives from abroad. And the whole thing was that it was a, it's an unsustainable way of recruiting people. Would you agree with that sort of thing? Yes. So, you know, we, we are fully signed up to other organisations like the Royal College of Physicians who say that we need to increase the number of medical school places and we need to assertively recruit. Now, the problem is recruitment takes a long time. Um, yeah. It takes a long time to grow a doctor. Retaining a doctor is actually a quicker thing to do. And we are worried that we're losing people at the at the top of their careers, often the people who are actually very experienced and very effective, but also who would be quite good at teaching all the new people coming through. Um, it's not just about doctors, it's absolutely you've got to think about nurses and other allied, allied health professionals. Um, and I think the NHS model of aggressive overseas recruitment it does not sit right. Now there are times where it works well, but sometimes we feel a bit I feel a bit uncomfortable about the ethics of this. Yeah, so would you say the NHS should invest in the youth? Things like Health Education England should really expand training places for nurses, for doctors, for midwives, for whoever, and really start 
getting into people early? I think so. I, th I think there is absolutely that need to um, start increasing the number of training places at medical schools, but also actually make sure there are training places after people have um, graduated from medical schools. And one of the issues we've seen is there has been a welcome recent expansion in the number of medical schools, but that has not been followed by an increase in the number of training places. So we're in a position where we've got a whole bunch of doctors who qualified who don't have training posts. And that seems very short-sighted. Yeah. And this is going slightly off topic a bit, but I'm just conscious I was reading about the Hewitt Review. It's um, it's meant to be published no later than the 15th of March, I believe. The, it's the whole review on um, ICSs. What, do you, what are you hoping comes from that? Um, so I think that she's uh, the Hewitt Review is having to do an awful lot of things quite quickly. I think providing some clarity of purpose about what works with ICSs is going to be important because there is a danger that this will become yet another level of bureaucracy. Now, I think the intent behind uh, this type of ICSs is right, um, that there are people who are responsible for whole system care um, and to take a sort of global view of both health and social care. I think where it works well, I think it could be a, a much better way of doing business. Um, but we also, uh, from, certainly from in emergency medicine, we want there to be clarity around what is expected from emergency departments. And having a clear target and a clear, clear performance metric for us is quite important. So everybody understands what we are supposed to do. Yeah. I was speaking recently to the former chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners. I think it's, it's Professor Martin Marshall speaking to him about it. And he said the ICSs at this point have become, he said, the reinvention of the middle tier of the NHS because they've got so many things going on, they can't actually focus on anything because they've not got a set, a set clear path. Would you agree with that sort of statement? I think that's possibly a little bit harsh. Um, I, I think I would reserve judgment because I think, you know, they haven't been around very long. And I think yeah. it would be, we need to give them a chance to establish what they're going to do. Um, and you know they will also lots of people will want them to do lots of things for them quite quickly that said um there is a time where this this is a crisis um and with the crisis we've got in urgent and emergency care and with all the problems with the elective backlog this is not a time to give lots and lots of people time just to develop into a role things need to happen yeah so in terms of to round up because i know you've got a short window so i don't want to Competing your time elsewhere, it's a true, very busy man. Um, if there's three things that you want to say to health leaders in regards to patient waiting times, regards to bed blocking, whatever, what would they be? Okay, fix occupancy, reduce occupancy. So that's, I'm going to count that as one. Yeah. Clarity of purpose around what we're supposed to be measured against. And that means we've, we're going back, back to the four-hour access standard. And that needs to be set at a more ambitious level than is currently being set. And aggressively pursue retention policies yeah thank you i know i invited you on the podcast but unless there's anything else that you'd like to add well i suppose the other thing is we we've got to be realistic there are no quick fixes to this this has been going wrong for quite a long time and the idea that you can snap fingers and turn things around we people need to be realistic about this this is a we're in for a long haul here this is going to be fixing this is going to be a marathon i'm optimistic it can be fixed yeah. But um, I know our political masters would like it to be fixed really quickly, but we've got to be realistic. This is not going to happen overnight. Yeah. 
So, well, that's it. Thank you for, for taking the time with me. I'm sure you've got other things to be doing and better things to talk to me. Thank you. Thank you for your answers. Very insightful. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. And that's been the latest episode of National Health Executive's Finger on the Pulse podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time.